0: Early in November 2023, the credit firm Moody's lowered its outlook on the U.S. government's credit rating from stable to negative, pointing at a huge decline in debt affordability the government's ability to borrow money cheaply, basically, and an ever-increasing, already gargantuan deficit as its primary justification for that change. And those issues are on top of another standoff in the House of Representatives over funding the government, which, if something is not done, will come to a head on November 17th. A previous agreement struck by the previous House Speaker, Kevin McCarthy, expires on that day, and if a new collection of 12 funding bills, which are what allows the government to pay for things, are not passed by then, the government could be shut down, possibly further diminishing the government's rating, on top of the many other consequences of not providing funding for things like national defense, energy and water development, and the Justice Department. This new reduction in outlook by Moody's follows a recent downgrade by Fitch back in August when that ratings firm dropped the U.S. government's rating from AAA to AA+, largely because of all the -the down-to-the-wire negotiations about funding the government that have roiled Congress over the past few years, and what that kind of tumult does to a government's ability to say for 100% certain that they will pay their debts and never default The U.S. has never defaulted on its debt, but the possibility becomes more realistic-seeming each time these politicians fail to provide funding for essential government functions, including debt paying. Fitch also, like Moody's, cited the general diminishment in fiscal circumstances across the government, though, referring to a collection of variables that have been weighing down the state's capacity to acquire cheap debt. Ratings are one such variable, as each decrease in a nation's credit rating makes debt more expensive, folks and other states buying bonds and treasuries and the like demanding more interest for the same amount of loaned money, which is what those sorts of financial instruments are at the end of the day. But beyond reputation, there are also factors like high interest rates, hiked by the Fed in order to tamp down on inflation, and the accumulated interest payments that must be paid on previous debt taken out by the government to pay its bills. So in addition to the government suddenly having to pay more interest on all its new debt, It also has to pay more and more interest on its existing debt, and that latter figure is compounding to the point that a lot of folks who are otherwise generally unconcerned about such things are starting to take what could turn out to be a practical notice. What I'd like to talk about today is Rubinomics, government spending, and why the US federal debt is becoming a political talking point once more. You're listening to Let's Know Things, I'm Colin Wright. Learn more about Let's Know Things, subscribe to receive free email updates, and or become a supporter to receive monthly bonus episodes at letsknowthings.com. In the context of federal spending, fiscal responsibility refers to the balancing of a state's budget so that its spending is almost always close to or below its revenue. So if a government brings in a trillion dollars in revenue from taxes, for example, and spends a trillion dollars to keep agencies running, infrastructure maintained, and its military up to date, that is a balanced budget. If that same government were to spend a trillion and a half dollars without increasing tax revenues, it would instead have a deficit. Of a half trillion dollars and if it were to spend less than it pulls in if it were to reduce the social safety net programs it provides or spend less on its military and thus it only spent a half trillion of the trillion that it pulls in in taxes that would represent a surplus of a half trillion dollars this is similar at its most basic level at least to how an individual might manage their money Spend more than you make and you'll tend to go into debt. Spend less than you make and you can sock money away or invest it and spend exactly what you make and your bills will all be paid without accruing debt, a balanced budget. This comparison, though intuitive in a way, at least for the purposes of defining the outline of how this works, is also quite flawed, and economists have given it a name, potentially to make criticizing it that much easier. They call it the government-household analogy, and this analogy is often touted by politicians, usually when they want to criticize their opponents for their spending, by making it seem like they are less capable and responsible than the average heads of a household of balancing a budget. Why should we good, hard-working citizens be required to assiduously manage our personal spending? But these freewheeling politicians can't seem to balance a budget of billions or trillions of dollars. Now, the analogy falls apart when you look at the specifics of a household versus those of a government. Governments, after all, can literally print money if they choose to do so. They also tend to get far more favorable terms on debt can increase their budgets by raising taxes, and oddly, if you think of a government as a household at least, different facets of a government can owe other facets of that same government money. So part of the debt owed might be owed to itself. While this analogy is often convincing to voters then, It's not terribly useful as a model for economists or for folks working to actually manage budgets of the scale and with the peculiarities of a government's budget. All that said, there are pros and cons to every possible approach to government debt, as running a deficit, spending more than is pulled in via taxes means that a state can invest in more programs and infrastructure. And just like a company taking on debt to invest in more manufacturing capacity or warehouses or restaurant locations, that can mean setting things up for growth in the future. A healthy, happy, secure, well-educated populace will tend to do better than the opposite. And more infrastructure, more assets that you spend that money on can improve and amplify those sorts of attributes in a population and in a country, and that can lead to more revenue sometime later. On the other hand, just like any other debt, federal debt tends to be paid back with interest, and that means the government taking on such debt will not just be on the hook to pay back the initial principal amount that they borrowed, but more than that. And possibly, especially if debt accrues for a long while, or accrues during periods of higher interest rates, for them specifically or more globally, they could be on the hook for a lot more than that initial principal amount. The last time the U.S. government had a balanced budget was in 2001, and it's enjoyed the same for five years total in the past five decades, four of which were the years leading up to and including 2001, and the fifth being 1969. This is such a rare state of affairs in part because the general economic consensus, amongst economists in the U.S. at least, is that federal debt is not a big deal, that it tends to lead to more benefits than downsides, and that it is therefore prudent to not balance the budget most of the time, because doing so leads to austerity, severe cuts in vital programs and other investments, and that hobbles the nation and limits its capacity for growth over the long haul. Balancing the budget just to balance the budget then is not really such a good thing, according to this prevailing theory. It's a compelling rallying cry for some folks occupying some spots on the ideological spectrum, traditionally those on the conservative side of things more than on the left, but not spending also comes with consequences, and those consequences tend to outweigh the downsides of accruing some amount of debt year to year. Again, at least according to the prevailing economic theory. This mainstream sensibility about debt, though, was subbed out during that 1998 to 2000 period, during the Bill Clinton administration, when the Treasury Secretary Robert Rubin implemented a policy that became known as Rubinomics, which was defined by an attempt to keep the federal budget balanced as part of a larger effort to control inflation and interest rates. The theory being that this would improve perception of the U.S. economy, which in turn would lead to more investment, local and international, and would allow U.S. economic entities, and thus U.S. citizens, to flourish. There's been a fair bit of debate as to whether this theory was proved out by Rubin's policies. Yes, the US economy absolutely killed it while Clinton was in office, and yes, long-term interest rates on treasuries and bonds dropped, making it less expensive for the government to take on debt when it wanted to borrow money for whatever. The country's GDP averaged around 4% during that period, inflation maintained a 2.5% rate, which is just north of the 2% rate that the Fed prefers, and the U.S. economy saw its longest continuous period of expansion at any point in history. But, and this is a big but, those variables might have also been tweaked by the so-called Peace dividend of the late 1990s, which was defined by a post Cold War drawdown of military activity and thus military spending around the world during that span of time. They may also have been influenced by a series of new trade agreements, hands off monetary policies, and the benefits of new technologies that were finally being exploited for profitable purposes after a long period of investment, like, among others, the consumer internet. So there's a chance that Rubenomics played a role in all that monetary flourishing, but there is also a chance that it was either just one of several influences, or maybe it was just a bystander, or even a downward pressure on the same, the flourishing that the United States saw during that period, primarily or entirely the consequence of other variables. Today, Part of the aforementioned drama playing out in the U.S. House of Representatives is being driven by a focus on reducing the federal deficit, the total debt the U.S. owes, which recently hit an all-time record high of something like $33 trillion, which carries a total interest payment as of 2023 of somewhere between $659 billion and a cold trillion dollars a year, depending on whose numbers and analysis you use. That interest payment at that level has become one of the top expenses of any expense category for the US government, surpassing things like the cost of all transportation and veterans benefits payments and approaching or surpassing, depending on which figure you use, the cost of Medicare or the military. It is primarily, right now at least, the further right members of the House that are demanding substantial cuts to the budget. The Senate mostly keen to keep spending levels where they are, and the majority of House Republicans seem happy to do the same, though Democrats are more likely, on average, to want higher levels of spending nearly across the board, again, right now. Who wants what tends to change, at least in the specifics, every decade or so. And this is such a big issue right now in part because of that ballooning deficit and in part because there's just a lot to spend on these days. With military and humanitarian funding for Ukraine and Israel on the table, alongside investments in renewable energy infrastructure, in healthcare, and in other such, by some estimates at least, foundational elements of the government's various programs and priorities, and other next step priorities that might make the United States more competitive with industries that are just now starting to become real deal things that are theoretically at least worth investing in. Last weekend, reports from within the House indicated that the new House Speaker, Mike Johnson, wants to pass a stopgap funding bill to avoid a government shutdown before the November 17th deadline. And to do so, he wants to break the funding extension into two parts, rather than having representatives vote on all 12 funding bills all at once. Each bill would cover different aspects of government funding and would extend spending a little further into the future, keeping spending levels where they are currently and providing no new funds to Ukraine or Israel, the former of which is a sticking point for a lot of conservative representatives. And though this approach is meant to win over enough people from both sides of the aisle to get a stopgap funding bill passed in time to avoid a shutdown, folks across the political spectrum have seemed generally unhappy with it. Voting on this could begin as soon as today, and we will see if people are unhappy in the sense that they don't get what they want, but they are okay to keep fighting for those things that they want while the government stays open, which is what this bill would allow, or if they are unhappy in the sense that they will play chicken with a government shutdown in order to prove their point. For what it's worth, analysts seem pretty mixed at the moment on whether this will work or not. This general topic, that of the deficit, is likely to only become a more pressing issue and thus a more potent political hot potato as interest rates, which look likely to stay high for at least another year, increase the debt load the U.S. government has to tend to, making debt more expensive for the government, and safe investment vehicles like treasuries, because of those higher interest rates, become more lucrative assets for investors, which can have the knock-on effect of making stocks and similar, riskier investments less appealing, possibly hindering economic investment and development, even as the government watches their interest payments balloon as an increasingly dominant expense, on its accounting spreadsheets. The book I'd like to recommend today is called Quantum Supremacy by Michio Kaku. This book is loaded with valuable information about the topic of quantum computing and the potential for an eventual moment in time, at which point quantum computing becomes stronger, more useful than traditional computing, a moment in time which is often referred to as Q-Day, or the moment in which quantum supremacy is achieved. And it's written by a guy who knows more about this subject than most other people. He's an expert in this field. And though the book is a bit vague in some cases, at times seemingly just a list of things that are going wrong in the world today and theoretical ways that quantum computing could help solve all of those many and varied problems, rather than getting into the nitty-gritty of what might lay between this moment in time and that theoretical point in the future. It's also fairly upbeat. It is very interesting. It will tell you probably a lot of things that you don't already know about quantum computing, even if you've read a fair bit about it in the past. And it is, again, written by someone who knows what they are talking about on the matter. Now, if any of that sounds interesting to you, consider picking up a copy of Quantum Supremacy by Michio Kaku. You can subscribe to receive email updates, find show notes and other such content and support this show financially, receiving additional bonus episodes as a thank you at letsknowthings.com. Learn more about me and my work at colin.io. Subscribe to my other news focused podcast, One Sentence News, wherever you get your pods or at onesentencenews.com and say howdy on social media. I'm at colin is my name on Instagram and Twitter and colin Wright on Facebook and YouTube. Thank you so much for listening. I'm Colin Wright, and I'll talk to you again next week.